Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, January 18th. Survival is the name of the game. On day two of the 2022 Australian Open, so many exciting matches for us to break down on today's show. Of course, I want to offer my thoughts on Andy Murray's five-set dramatic victory over number 21 seed Nicolas Basilishvili. It's crazy to think we're about three years removed from the Australian Open offering a retirement video for Murray when it seemed like injuries were going to rob us of the rest of his career. Now, he's back to doing what he does best. Blows a break lead in the fifth set only to break to secure the victory. I want to offer my thoughts on his form in the match. Talk about where he goes from here in the draw moving forward as well. But look, Murray was far from the only dramatic match on the day. There were plenty of seeds who survived by the skin of their teeth. 2021 U.S. Open champion Emma Raducanu amongst them. She earns a three-set victory over Sloane Stephens. Want to talk about her form, how important this win will be for her moving forward. Felix Ogier Aliasim arguably playing the match of the day. Five-set victory over talented Emil Rusevori. I want to talk about both guys and what was my favorite match on day two. Of course, there are others, right? Sabalenka somehow survives. She's into round two, went over Storm Standards. And Anaconia, maybe the best women's match on the day. Three-set victory over Shelby Rogers. You had Rabakina surviving as well. Top seeds looking exceptional on the day also. I want to talk about all of that on today's show, offer some brief thoughts on day three as well, although I imagine most of you will be listening to this by the time day three has already begun. I do apologize for that fact. We're trying to get the schedule worked out as we progress through the year's first Grand Slam. Of course, if you're looking for predictions for each day, check out our Great Shot podcast feed. I do my GSP Ace of the Day segments, offer my picks for each and every day's matches, run you through the board of play. Of course, if you want to hear specific match breakdowns, become a Patreon subscriber. Not only can you support our work here at Crack Rackets, you can hear my Match of the Day segments. I break down the matches that are most intriguing to me on each and every day. Day one was Bedosa Tomjanovic. Day two, Two, FAA Rusevori Day 3, Benchich versus Anisimova will have plenty of fun over the next, what, 12 days of action, I suppose, as well. So if that's something that intrigues you or you just like to support our work here at Crack Rackets, you can do so by going to our website, crackrackets.com today. Of course, before I get into my Day 2 recap, as always, got to give a shout out to all of you listeners, to our Crack Rackets Patreon family. We have more of you now than ever before. We are immensely grateful for that fact. It's why we work so hard to try to provide all of you listeners with the coverage of all levels of the tennis world that you deserve, of course. Again, daily podcasts here recapping all the action. GSPs each and every day as well. Cracked Interviews podcast to prepare all of you for the college tennis season, which is officially rocking and rolling college contenders content. All of that available on our website crackedrackets.com. Of course, what powers us here on the Mini Break Show is the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. And you all know, latest, greatest equipment at the best prices, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. That's tennis-point, symbol not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's get to our day two 
Australian Open recap, we have to start with Andy Murray, right? He captures the hearts of just about every tennis fan out there, and to have him back in our lives as a part of the tennis ecosystem, tennis world is just a better place when he's healthy and competing. And, you know, what has been a theme for Andy Murray in his return? It's something we talked about this offseason. He's played so many physical matches, and it's just ridiculous and remarkable to think that it was that physicality that had seemingly broken his body in 2017, 2018, 2019 to the point where we weren't sure if we were going to get to see him compete on tour any further. But he's regained that aspect of physicality that has always separated him from so many uh, other professional players. Just his desire, his competitive spirit. He's going to track down every ball. And I saw this conversation emerging on Twitter during his match. Should he be more conservative? Should he pick his spots a bit better? Maybe let some balls go by? The answer to that in theory is of course yes. You would love him to preserve his energy levels, his physicality throughout the course of the match a bit better, be a bit more efficient and how he goes about it. At the same time, it's that instinct, that inclination to track down every ball that makes Andy Murray special and ultimately is what won him this match over Nicolas Basilashvili. And again, was a five-set win for Murray over the number five seed. He beats Basilashvili 6-1, 3-6, 6-4, 6-7, 6-4. Worth mentioning, he's now played Basilashvili, what, I want to say three times notably, maybe two times, yeah, three times uh, since returning to tour action. He beats him in Wimbledon in four sets. He beats him uh, in Sydney in his warm-up event last week in three sets, now a five-set victory over Basilashvili. And look, Basilashvili has the sort of weapons to give Murray difficulties. There's no denying he's not in 2015, 2016, you know, that prime Andy Murray 2011-12 form, even when he was just this reckless, incredible athlete on the court. He's not that anymore, but you see signs of it. The first step still as explosive as ever. His anticipation still still as explosive as ever, and or as as exceptional as ever. Excuse me, and just that oh, that guttural, visceral, you know, yell that he gives out when he changes directions, when he puts all of his power into that first step to try and track down a ball. You just feel that as a tennis fan. That's why we all gravitate towards him. I've said this before. I'll say it again. He is the most human of the tennis players I think of the past two generations. That's why. You know, so many fans can relate to him, the way he's constantly yelling at himself, yelling at his box, chasing perfection. If you have played tennis seriously at any point of your lifetime, you can understand those inclinations and relate to them. And that's why what makes Murray Murray, that's why to some extent I just think it's an impossibility for him to ever get up, give up that instinct. That's what makes him special, tracking down every ball, competing for every point, getting angry at himself, even when Basilashvili is ripping these ridiculous down-the-line backhand winners, ridiculous forehands inside out, and just, again, in terms of top flight power, Basilashvili has that. Now, he committed plenty of unforced errors in this match, 99 in total to his 69 winners, but he did hit 69 winners to Murray's 25, and again, that's what allowed Murray to win this match. Kept playing that extra ball, kept changing directions, kept things deep and in the center of the court to not give Basilashvili easy angle and space on his side of the court to work with. And yet again, Basilashvili was ripping. 69 winners in this match. The difference was the consistency. He only makes 59% of his first serves to Murray's 62, wins 48% of his second serve points to Murray's uh, 55. You know, you look at the breakpoint opportunities, Murray has 19 in the match. 
Basilashvili has 10, Murray converts 9, Basilashvili 6. You felt like Murray probably should have won this match in four sets and certainly had opportunities at the beginning of the fourth set to earn the break and race out to a lead against Basilashvili. But then Basilashvili started serving much better down the home stretch of the fourth. And, you know, it was huge for Murray to get that early break in the fifth. And he was out a break for the entirety of pretty much the fifth set until Basilashvili broke back. And then Basilashvili serving at 4-5 and Murray buckles down. And, you know, again, indicative of his the return of his physicality that I've been discussing is the on-the-rise backhand return he hits on match point that eventually, you know, sets up the point for him to draw the error from Basilashvili forehand in the net. That sort of physicality was not there when Murray played Basilashvili in Wimbledon. I don't think it was quite there at the U.S. Open either. He has clearly become more fluid throughout his six-month return, clearly more comfortable swinging through the backhand corner, not chipping it nearly as frequently at the same time. And I mentioned those numbers, 71% win percentage on the first serve, 55% win percentage on the second serve, you know, 12 of 16 at the net. There was a renewed aggression to Murray. At the same time, he let Basilashvili make his mistakes, and there's no doubt when you look at the script of this match, it's Basilashvili on his front foot, either just behind the service line or on top of uh, that baseline, excuse me, or on top of that baseline, dictating while Murray was chasing around. But Murray created enough plus one forehand opportunities, got Basilashvili stretched in the outer thirds, uh, outer thirds of the court from an aggressive posture. And he played well. Now, again, this was a physical, time, you know, long affair, three hours, 52 minutes, and you look for Murray moving forward. Now, the good news, day off, obviously that helps. No one is going to be more efficient about their recovery than Andy Murray. The second thing is he gets a qualifier next in Taro Daniel. And look, that's the benefits of knocking out the seed first round in your section. Now, I, you look for Murray, even if he's able to get through Taro Daniel, and he will be the favorite in that match, 81.8% via our friend's at Tennis Abstract, and I'm sure he'll be minus 400-ish on uh, DraftKings, although I bet Daniel will be a sneaky underdog pick. After that's probably the Sin Man. And I don't know if I saw enough from Murray, either from a physicality standpoint, although again, that was improved, certainly, and I think his first step is getting better, and he's becoming more fluid, he's changing direction better. The Sin Man is just a a more efficient version of Basilishvili, and what a tough matchup that would be. Basilishvili already pushing Murray to the brink, but you look for Andy Murray again. Grand Slam victories are what get you back into the top 100, get you back towards the top 50, and I think for Murray, it's a tough draw, and obviously that's not the standard he holds himself to, but that's the litmus test for him. Can he get back into the top 50 right now, be at a point where he doesn't need wild cards into these events anymore, and I think he's going to get back into the top 100, no problem. But, you know, be in the mix at the Masters event. Be a guy who can, you know, make third round, second weeks again at Grand Slams and quarterfinals at Masters events. I think if he can become that player again, A, once you're in the mix, you're in the mix. But B, what a remarkable comeback that would be. That's going out on your own terms if you're Andy Murray, which I think is all he's ever wanted. And again, there's just a competitive fire that clearly burns within him. Now, Basilashvili, who faces significant allegations of abuse in a prior relationship of his uh, allegations that have been explored by multiple different outlets. You can find that yourself. Um, He played an excellent match. He was striking the ball brilliantly, and I know he was going for broke, but Murray was presenting him the opportunity saying, here's your layup. You know, I'm not putting you away. This match is on your rack. And then Basilashvili nearly came back and won the damn thing. I love the way he competed down the stretch of the fourth set. And in terms of ball striking, man, 
when that guy hits the ball cleanly, it explodes off of his racket. But credit to Andy Murray. He advances in five sets. 6-1, 3-6, 6-4, 6-7, 6-4. Again, up next, a date with qualifier Taro Daniel. With that in mind, let's talk about, again, some of the other survivors on day two, back half of the first round for the men's and women's singles competition. We'll go next to 2021 U.S. Open champion and 17th seed here, Emma Raducanu. Raducanu competing in her first Australian Open main draw, and that's something that's easy to forget because obviously now she carries the prestige of Grand Slam champion, but I think this is what? fourth, third, fourth main draw for, I think third in a Grand Slam in her career. And thus every Grand Slam win is significant. And you could see there was an excitement and a relief, but mostly an excitement in her face when she closed out her 602-661 win over Sloane Stevens yesterday that you'd think for a Grand Slam champion, like, hey, this is a first round win. You shouldn't be celebrating this. You shouldn't be dropping your racket, putting your hands in the air. At the same time, you have to remember Third Grand Slam main draw. Like, Emma Raducanu is still very new to all of this. And what was so impressive in this win over Stevens was the way she weathered the storm. And, you know, huh? are we going to say that for Sabalenka? Weather the storm? Storm Sanders? I got that joke made three times to me in my DMs. I'll call him out. That was you, Jeff Sackman of Tennis Abstract. You made the storm joke. Um, that's very Ben Rothenberg-y. Huh, great shot. Uh, you know, if you look for Raducanu yesterday... I don't think she played exceptionally well. And you look at the stats for her overall, you know, made 68% of her first serves, won 66% of her first serve points, six of eight on break point chances, 15 winners compared to Sloane Stevens, 14 against 30 unforced errors to Sloane Stevens, 42. And I think those two numbers are the key numbers. Neither player was given up much ground throughout the course of the rallies. And you look at the rally analysis in this match and shout out to the Australian Open for offering the best stats in the business and the extended highlights. You know, what was interesting is when Radic- the difference between these two players in this match, you know, and it was a very physical match, thus indicative of those unforced errors. Radicanu, 22.1 to Stevens, 21.1 in the 5-8 to eight shot rallies. Radicanu now, 20.1 to Stevens, 14 points in the 9-plus shot rallies, but 37-24 in the 0-4 to four shots. Radicanu was a little bit better at everything than Sloane Stevens yesterday. And, you know, Sloane Stevens' first match of the season, you could tell, rusty. In her first set, every ball was landing on the service line or shorter. Every ball was sitting up for Radicanu to attack. She did just that. She opened up the backhand down the line. And the problem for Steven, she didn't realize early on because she wanted to hit inside-out forehands. It was the better shot for her in set one. Radicanu feasted on that backhand down the line after backhand down the line. And, you know, Stevens made the adjustment, the depth in set number two, the aggression she played with. She started taking balls out of the air. She started to make the match a track meet. It was an exceptional set of tennis, and that's why she took it 6-2. And you saw, you know, again, in terms of the unforced error count for Emma Raducanu, she makes 30 overall in the match. You look for her in set number two, 19 of those 30 unforced errors. She started pressing and, you know, trying to pull the trigger too early, trying to yank the forehand down the line or, you know, hit with additional pace attacking the backhand cross court, and it just wasn't working for her. And credit to Stevens for sticking in that match and throwing plans B, C, and D at Ranakanu, incorporating some slice and swinging volleys, doing all of these different things. But again, foundationally, 
it was really difficult for Sloane Stevens to hurt Emma Kanu at all in this match, and the numbers are indicative of that fact. For Sloane Stevens, she makes 68% of her first serves. That sounds good, right? 47% win percentage on first serve points, 44% win percentage on second serve points. That means Radakanu wins 52% of her return points overall. Again, 14 winners against 42 unforced errors. It was just really hard for Stevens to generate anything easy in this match. Thus, Radakanu is able to survive in advance. And I do think for Radakanu, who you know had COVID and was only able to play one warm-up match where she gets blitzed by an informal in a Rabakana 0-1, uh, this was the perfect, perfect first-round match for Emma Raducanu, able to work her way physically, play, you know, again, multiple extended rallies, and, you know, have to craft points, cross, cross, line is the pattern on the backhand wing, and, you know, change direction constantly with her forehand, look to move forward when the opportunity presented itself, and neither player moved forward particularly much, Raducanu 7 of 9 in the match, Stevens 11 of 20, I wonder if that includes the swinging volleys that she hit, but I thought Radakanu played well. And again, physically, as this match went on, she was the fresher of the two players. There was no wear and tear. She was willing to, you know, again, extend rallies with Stevens with the premise being, okay, well, if you can't hurt me, I'm not going to let you beat me physically in this match. And that's a credit to how advanced Radakanu already is at age 18. You look for her now moving forward in the draw. I mean, things stay tough for Emma Raducanu. She's got Danka Kavinic next, who's played very good ball in the past 12 months. Again, that's a match Raducanu should absolutely win. Next up after that would be Simona Halep. And we saw Halep knock off Raducanu comfortably at the end of the last season on indoor hard courts. That would be a fun rematch, right? Because to some extent, you know, I mean, Simona Halep's just a better version of what Sloan Stevens tries to do. That would be a fun physical challenge, and that's why I think this was a good way for Radakanu to work her way into form. This was the perfect warm-up match for her. Warm-up match. I didn't. I don't mean to belittle Sloane Stevens like that. This was the perfect first-round match for her to work her way into the tournament with this sort of tough victory. There we go. That's the framing I was looking for. Tough draw for Stevens, who. Again, I think still with her performance, even at, at, with, at it, with it not being at its best in set number one, could have beaten a lot of different players in this draw. But Radakanu advances to round number two. Again, third, fourth Grand Slam main draw. I forget what it is. Let me look this up. It's going to bother me. For Emma Radakanu in her career, obviously played Wimbledon last year, obviously plays the U.S. Open last year as well. You look for her beyond that in terms of at the Grand Slam level. Emma Radakanu has played qualifying before. She is only playing, yes, her third. There we go. Third Grand Slam main draw. Third. First Australian Open of her career. She's never played the French Open, period. Not qualifying, not anything. Nothing. Nada. Maybe juniors, but nothing at the senior level. And so, first Australian Open, round of 64. By the way, she'll take the points as well. They're free points to add to her resume. Radakanu advancing in three sets. Another player pushed to the brink. Another top seed, young talent. Felix Ogier Aliassime pushed to five sets. Ultimately survives against Emil Rusevori, FAA, earning a 6-4, love 6-3-6, 6-3, 4 win over the talented Finn. You look for FAA throughout the course of the match. Struggled on his serve in this one. You look at the numbers for him. FAA only a 55% first serve in percentage. Now he won 68% of those points, 53% of his second serve points. Actually, you know, again, broken five times in the match, but three of those breaks coming in the second set. 
he was clearly uncomfortable with the wind, and I think that affected his toss. It affected his serve, and yet he still found ways to survive in this match. And I have to say, as great as FAA was, and I want to get back to him in a second, Rusevori's the takeaway from this match, and it's a credit to FAA that he managed to survive, and I want to talk about that element again at the end. But the serve, the forehand for Rusevori, he thoroughly outplayed FAA through the first three sets of this match, and that was the difficulty for him, that he didn't ultimately win this match in straights, that FAA was able to scrap his way back from a breakdown, ultimately take that first set 6-4. You look for Rusevori, 38 winners in this match uh, compared to 67 unforced errors. It was 26 winners for FAA, 52 unforced errors. Again, they're pretty even, but what that tells you is that the match was on Rusevori's racket. He was the one, again, with more winners, or when he went for broke. He was the one committing the unforced error. He was more aggressive of the two players, and that's a credit to Rusevori, who had to be more aggressive, as he was the underdog, as he was the guy trying to earn the upset victory. And just, if you didn't watch this match, it'll take you three seconds to realize when I say Emil Rusevori is talented on the forehand wing. You'll know exactly what I talk about. When he steps forward, puts his weight, his momentum behind that ball, whether he's changing directions inside in, inside out, it's just money. Case in point, it's just money. The weight of that ground stroke, he has the potential to have a top 10 sort of forehand on hard courts. And I know that's a very specific category, but top 10 forehand on hard courts on the ATP Tour. I just don't know if he moves well enough on the grass, on the clay to sustain it on that surface, but... It's a special shot, and I thought in particular as well, the drive he has on his backhand. It's a condensed backswing, but the depth he's able to generate and cross-court down the line, it's more line drive than it is topspin heavy, and you know there's not much shape to it. There's a lot of drive on that stroke, but it, it's rock solid as a return because of how condensed it is, and just, again, I'm a believer in all things Emil Rusevori. This guy has talent. I mean, this again, he outplayed Felix through the first three sets, was able to, you know, win the backhand-to-backhand exchanges, and then whenever he got a look on the forehand, was hitting the forehand bigger and more decisively than even Felix was. The difference in this match was the physicality Felix brought and his willingness to go backhand cross-court in those first three sets. Even though Rusevori would ultimately win those exchanges, it was his willingness to play, you know, again, the five-plus shot rallies. And you look in this match between the two, it's actually interesting that Rusevori wins 100. Well, it, it's it's so difficult to count because you look at set number two, it's a 24-7 to seven spread in terms of total points. So you look at the total match, in uh, the total group, Grouping in this match, Rusevori ends up with a pretty favorable uh, in terms of the total points one category over FA. But you look beyond that first set, you know, Felix played him, uh, that second set, Felix played him evenly on the five to eight shot, you know, the five plus shot rallies, and then, you know, beat him still on the zero to four shot. Because as I mentioned in the preview, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you know, at their best, Felix's serve, his plus one forehand is still more efficient and more effective than Rusevori's was. And that was the case in sets three, uh, four and five, excuse me. It was also, again, that degree of physicality. Yes, Rusevori through the first three sets was able to block that backhand return back with depth, eventually find a forehand in the rally, put his weight behind that forehand, you know, use his speed to try and take that ball early on the rise and keep Felix on his back foot. 
he just wasn't able to quite sustain that momentum down the thir- home stretches of the, th- the fourth and fifth sets. And, you know, Felix gets that early break in set number five, holds on to it the rest of the way. I thought Felix hit the backhand particularly well. I thought that he earned the break of serve in the fourth set on a backhand passing shot on the run that he just hit hard at Rusevori's body, but that's a tough volley to do anything with if you're Emil Rusevori. Again, fantastic performance for F. Uh, not fantastic. He didn't serve well, but he managed to scrape his way through the match and, you know, 14 of 18 at the net wins, you know, 53% of his second serve points, generates 17 breakpoint chances for himself, even if he only manages to convert four of them. And I think that's a credit to Rusevori's ability to find a big serve when he needed it. In particular, made 72% of his first serves in this match, won 71% of those first serve points. He knew it was just important to land that first serve into the body, into the backhand to set up a first forehand for himself in the rally. This was an exceptional match. Exceptional. And the fact that Rusevori, again, total points won 138 to FA's 127 is indicative of the fact that there was an hour, hour and a half stretch where Rusevori thoroughly outplayed FA. The difference was FA's physicality down the home stretch and FA's ability to problem solve in that first set. Steal set number one. That ultimately makes the difference. It is FAA advancing in five sets over Rusevori, you look for Felix now moving further in the draw. He's got Davidovich Fokina next, another tricky sort of athlete, uh, you know, who will absorb the pace of Felix, turn defense into offense, hits, you know, try to keep Felix on his back foot, try to move forward, keep him uncomfortable as well. That's an interesting matchup, a tricky one given he's coming off of a five-set match, but you know, again, from a weapons perspective, he's got the advantage, a match on his racket, 77.6% favored. After that would be the winner of Rindernesh Dan Evans, which, boy, is that an exciting second round battle. Uh, again, Felix, one of the survivors on day number two, he advances in five sets. Now, Normally, I talk about the upsets in this portion of the draw with the theme being survival of this episode. I want to talk about the matches that went the distance on the men's and women's side. Let's start with the women in particular. It's a crazy theory, but this is why Arena, uh, you know, Jeff Sackman sent me the, oh, you're telling me Sabalenka is going to weather the storm joke yesterday. It's because I swear to God, Sabalenka getting through that match, 5-7-6-3-6-2 against Storm Sanders is all the confidence she needs to go crazy and rip off a run here at this 2022 Australian Open. And you look for Sabalenka, the stats, still not the prettiest, only made you know uh, 12 double faults for her on the day. You look at the unforced error count, 37 compared to her 29 winners. But you look at this, you know, six of her 12 double faults come in the first set of this three-set match and 15 of her unforced errors. And again, 15 of her 37 total unforced errors come in set number one as well. She goes down 4-1 to start this match, was just a mess on serve. The double faults were piling up and the errors were piling up, just couldn't find her rhythm. And then she did. And then all of a sudden it was the Arena, uh, Arena Sabalenka excuse me, that we saw from last season, the one whose combination of athleticism and sneaky fluidity for someone with her power and size just overwhelms opponents who don't have the weapons to match her shot for shot. And eventually that's what happened. She overwhelmed Sloan's, uh, Storm Sanders, who didn't have the power or the athleticism to match her shot for shot. And look, Sanders went after her first serve. That's why it was a 52% first serve percentage for her. And that's why she had 11 double faults, because when she would hit a lollipop to Sabalenka, backhand cross-court winner 
backhand down the line winner. Ditto on the forehand return as well. And, you know, again, that is why uh, Sanders had to be more aggressive. That's why, you know, 24 winners against 31 unforced errors, I actually think is a really good performance for Storm Sanders in this match. But Sabalenka inches closer and closer to returning to form, and that's what she needs more than anything else is confidence and match play to get back to her 2021 form. Because, again, she her, the serve was one of the most uh, one of her biggest assets in making semifinals of Wimbledon and you know semifinals of the US Open last season and it it was her biggest liability in her first two warm-up matches here in 2022 you look for her now she's going to take on Shin Yu Wang who knocks off Ann Lee in straight sets the talented 21-year-old lefty from China She's got some pop in her game. She will take advantage of Sabalenka's unforced errors and try to keep Sabalenka on her back foot as well. But I'll tell you what, if it's the Sabalenka of set number three in particular, it's a match she should win comfortably. After that, things get tricky. Winner of Samsonova, Vandrusova, that's not going to be easy no matter who it is, assuming Sabalenka can get there. But then you look at the top of that section, Kanepi, Buzkova, Baptiste, Inglis. If you're Arena Sabalenka... You feel as though, I mean, she's the number two seed, so this is hardly a hot take, but despite her poor form in week number one of this season, still a prohibitive favorite to advance, in my opinion, in her mind, to the semifinals. And certainly on paper, uh, she is a 22.9% favorite to advance out of her section. Eventually, the quarterfinal match, I believe, would be number seven seed Iga Sviantek, number 10 seed Pavlochenkova, someone in that quarter. You know, again, if she can get to that quarterfinal match, then things get a little bit tricky. I should say she's an overwhelming favorite to reach the quarterfinals in her mind, and I think that's all that matters. And again, found a little bit of confidence throughout sets two and three. Sabalenka advancing in three. A couple of the other seeds to survive three set matches. Rabakina was not healthy throughout the course of her match against Serena Diaz, had a right knee injury that was clearly bothering her, took a medical timeout at the end of the second set as well. But look, ultimately was able to fight off a couple of match points, take a 6-7-7-6-6-1 victory over fellow countrywoman Diaz. And I watched that match. I say this lovingly to you, Serena Diaz, and I, I don't mean this to be disrespectful. She just didn't have the weapons to hang with Rabakina. Everything about that match was on Elena Rabakina's terms. And, you know, the point would end one of two ways, a Rabakina winner or a Rabakina error. And, you know, with that right knee ailment, her movement was a bit, you know, limited. That said, they're just she was it was she was letting that pain and I think the frustration in her level of play get to her, and that's how the unforced errors began to pile up. But credit to Rabakina, who again fights off a couple of match points. It was a complicated second set tiebreak, complicated ending to that second set as well. Rabakina down four five, holds that love four five all, excuse me, uh, is able to then goes up love 40 in the five all service game of Diaz. Diaz broken uh, at love, uh, not broken, excuse me, manages to fight them off, holds for 6-5, has a match point in Rubakina's 5-6 uh, service game. Rubakina able to ultimately take that service game, take the tie break after not converting a couple of set points consecutively, then steamroll. You could just tell she broke Diaz's spirit. Now again, that Rubakina was able to survive, certainly indicative of her rise in the uh, 
ascension up the WTA ranks, winning a match when you're not playing your best, when you're not feeling your best. That's the telltale sign of a top player on tour. But you do wonder for her now physically how this hurts her moving forward because you look for Elena Rabakina. Shui Zhang next, sure. You think that's a match she should win if healthy. But after that, it would be probably Mertens. And then if she wants to get, you know, fourth round, uh, excuse me, uh, past the fourth round, it would be one of Collins, Konya, Tossin, Conteve. If she's not healthy, all of those players I talked about could beat her. And so that's just something to monitor moving forward. For now, she'll take surviving to advance to round number two. Another seed who advances in three sets tomorrow's a Danzig. 7-6 in the third win over Aranksa Rus. I've forgotten that the third set breaker now is a 10-point super breaker. I kind of love it. I really do. I enjoy it. It's kind of goofy. I'm not a fan. I don't mind the win by, you know, the sudden death. You play regular tennis 7-6 anyways. If you want to make that a super a regular tiebreak, I'd have been fine with it. That it's a super tiebreaker, that much more enjoyable. But Zidancic, low-hanging fruit, everything between here and the French Open. Again, just building on her rankings points. She has the chance with how the ranking system is right now to make a top 20 push if she can have some success here early in the season. Big win for her over Aronksa Roos. Uh, you look now for Zidancic, very winnable match number two against Heather Watson as well. Match of the day on the women's side belongs to Anna Konya. Konya, three-set win over Shelby Rogers. I mean, this match was all about plus one first strike tennis, and you look for both of these players. It's fascinating, by the way. Anna Konya, 42 winners in this match against 51 unforced errors. Rogers, 15 winners against 33 unforced errors. I don't think that entirely tells the script because, yeah, Konya may have gotten her rack on a bunch of balls, but, you know, the plus one of Shelby Rogers, you look at, you know, throughout the course of the match. I actually thought her plus one, she played pretty evenly with Anna Konya. The difference being Konya was the more dynamic player from the baseline, whether it was taking her backhand cross court down the line, inside in, inside out, short angles. Again, everything she's able to do, brilliant, brilliant ball striker. And she, I thought she was also slightly better moving in this match than Shelby was. And, you know, that's not to take away from Shelby, whose movement, in my opinion, is better than it's ever been in her career. But there's just a fluidity to Konya and an anticipation that she has as well. And then again, if she gets her ball on the racket, she's going to do something special with that ball, whether it's down the line, whether it's cross court. She just has vision, have feel, has feel her willingness to, you know, again, play the drop shot, her willingness to move forward in this match, 14 of 17 at the net. Again, 42 winners against 51 unforced errors. She can do it all. And now that she's confident, once again, you look for Anna Konya, who's quite adored by this tennis abstract formula. She's got a 25.7% chance against Danielle Collins, according to the numbers. You would expect that to be far lower, given the ranking disparity between the two players. Anna Konya's coming back, folks. That's a fantastic victory for her over Shelby Rogers. She advances to the second round, and again, getting these first round victories, solidifying her spot in the top 75, top 60, top 50. 50 moving forward, not having to play qualifying anymore. It's just going to make life easier for her as she continues to regain her top level of fitness as well and just looks to peak as she enters, you know, 24, 25, 26 years old, still extraordinarily young despite all the health struggles she's endured. Kanya, uh, three-set win to advance to round number two sucks that one of those players has to go home after the first round because I promise you if they're not only the top two of the top 64 players in the draw they may just be two of the top 32 or better as well 
That said, a couple of other three-setters quickly. Haddad Maya, three sets over Volley Nets. Tough loss for Katie Volley Nets, who I thought did really well to qualify for this Grand Slam main draw. Big win for hometown favorite Sam Stozer. Stozer, three sets over former UCLA All-American Robin Anderson. You had a three-set win for Heather Watson over former Pepperdine and Fresno State standout Meyer Sharif Bagu. Three sets over Doden Kavinich, three sets over Jang. And then young American Haley Baptiste who we named in December as one of the players we were watching as a rising star, someone who had never but could crack the top 100 this season. She earns a big win, qualifies into this event, then three sets now over Caroline Garcia, 4-6-7-6-6-3. Again, you'll watch her hit the serve, the forehand. You'll say, yep, that's going to win her a ton of matches for a really long time throughout the course of her career. Uh, She's ready to start winning a bunch of matches now, though, and that's a really nice win over uh, Garcia, who's, yes, struggling with her confidence, but obviously the sort of veteran win you need to earn to work your way into what is the deepest WTA top 100, in my opinion, in history. Those were your women's matches that went the distance on the men's side. You know, I mentioned the FAA five-setter, a couple of other fun five-setters on the day as well. One of them, an upset as Max Cressy, 7-6, over John Isner. I think the big takeaway for Cressy wasn't broken in the match. And yeah, I mean, it's John Isner. You would hope if you are an elite of elite server, you're not getting broken against John freaking Isner. But guess what? He's an elite of the elite server, as he continues to prove, and he did not get broken by John freaking Isner. And just, you know, for Cressy, here was the difference in this match. A, Cressy's better at serving and volleying than John Isner is. Cressy's depth on his first volley and just his feel when he's got to take that first volley as a half volley as well, how well he reads the return of serve. If he's slicing his first serve out wide, he's covering the line. He's covering that alley and uses his length so well to cover the short angle cross court as well. So efficient and active with his feet. Everything Max Cressy does is explosive from the serve to just his footwork, his athleticism at the net. He's just an explosive athlete. And at six foot six, Helps to be that big and that explosive as well. And the difference in this match, again, Isner was better from the baseline, but they didn't play many baseline rallies. The difference being Crassy's backhand return, his ability, how condensed he is on the backhand wing, his ability to take that ball early on the rise, rip it with his length as well. It was the best return on the court. And then Cressy was the better serving server and volleyer. And ultimately, again, the return, more importantly, I would say, than the serve, although it helped him not get broken. And, you know, Isner was up Love 40 in two separate service games. Love 40 in the first set, Love 40, I believe, in the uh, third set as well. Unable to get over the finish line in those two Love 40 service games. Unable to convert any of his break points. Now, again, credit to Cressy for serving as well as he did. Isner's going to be kicking himself for dropping that first set, especially that opening game opportunity. Now, did well to stage a comeback, force a fifth set in this match, but Cressy was more physical in the end and ultimately, again, better at executing his game plan in the biggest moments. Cressy advances, second round Australian Open, his rise, one of the stories of the Australian summer. Going to be interesting now, by the way, because Cressy's taken out the seed, and so you look for Max Cressy here now in round number two. He's going to face Thomas Matchek, the qualifier out of the Czech Republic. And guess what? Cressy, 59.1% favorite to advance to the third round of the Australian Open. If one year ago I would say, hey, a year from now, it's going to be weird if Cressy doesn't make the third round of the Australian Open. Then, by the way, potentially looming as his matchup to get into the fourth round would be number 13 seed Diego Schwartzman, which just given the matchup for Schwartzman, how fascinating that would be. 
man, Max Cressy's real, folks. Former NCAA doubles champion, guy who spent so much time developing at during his uh, tenure at UCLA. College tennis works, folks. That's why I implore all of you to continue to watch it. You're going to see some of the game's rising star, and I'm telling you, the game continues to get deeper. It continues to get better. We're going to see more Max Cressys emerge over the course of the next decade. That was obviously a big upset on the day in one of your five-set thrillers. Good five-set day for the Americans not named Isner Stevie Johnson. Five-set win over Jordan Thompson. Not much to say about that match other than it was ugly. Francis Tiafo, five-set win over Trungaletti. Arthur Rindernesh, another college tennis product, All-American, Texas A&M. Five-set win over Alexi Popperin. I'm workshopping the nickname for Alexi Popperin, poor man's Kyle Edmund, not to be disrespectful to either of them. I just think there's a lot of similarities in their game. And I guess we'll call it Edmund.9. If you agree or disagree, at Al Gruskin, let me know. We've got Sebastian Baez, big win for him. You know, obviously a guy who hasn't played many hardcore matches throughout the course of his career, now capitalizing on all of that challenger success, solidifying his place in the top 100 with a five-set win first round of a Grand Slam over Ramos Vinolas. He also had a dramatic five-set win for Benoit Paire, 7-5 in the fifth over Diego Montiero. You could see the elation in Benoit Paire's face like, oh my God, second round Grand Slam check. Oh my God, I get to play on at a stage that I enjoy playing tennis at. You can see the joy in Pear's face, and so frequently we see the lack of joy he share, expresses on a tennis court. Very fun to watch a locked-in Benoit Pears. He still is a ridiculous shot maker on tour. You also had Barankis Carbeas Benya, the, perhaps the most five-set scripted match of all time. You just knew when the draw came out. Okay, pencil them in. They'll play five sets. It's exactly what they do. Barankis five-set victory over Carbeas Benya. Those were the survivors, the matches that went the distance on day two. Now, a couple of things for us still to hit here down the home stretch of this pod. Women's upsets on the day. We mentioned a couple of them, you know, or we mentioned a couple of averted upsets. We did have three seeds knocked out on day number two. Kaya Kanepi, always dangerous this portion of the year. I think made a third round last year at the Australian Open, but certainly you know the weapon she brings each and every match. She earns 6-4-6-3 win over Angelique Kerber. Now, Kerber hadn't played a match in 2022 leading up into this, and I don't want to say that played the factor in this matchup, but certainly Kerber was not at her best. Kanepi advancing in straights. Yes, that's an upset, but Kai Kanepi, as we all know, certainly capable of playing some exceptional tennis. You know who was far from exceptional, and I say this lovingly, number 20 seed Petra Kvitova. Not her best performance on the day. Now, it's always tough playing Serana Kirstea, who made a bunch of third rounds at Grand Slams last season. I believe third round or better at three of the year's four slams. But two and two from Kvitova, especially considering she won two of the first four games of this match and seemed to be striking the ball with renewed aggression. The problem was everything was in the center of the court. And the moment she tried to hit a ball cross court or go big down the line, she committed an error. I mean, error after error. She just was not striking the ball cleanly. I don't think she moved particularly poorly. Just, you know, sometimes you don't play well. This was one of those days where, respectfully, Kvitova was just not playing well. As such, Kirstea did a great job weathering the storm, Storm Sanders pun intended, uh, just changing direction, forcing Kvitova into the outer thirds, forcing, you know, not being overwhelmed by the pace of Kvitova. I know that sounds simple, a lot easier said than done. 2-2 two and two win for Kirstea. And then a 4-2 win from Madison Inglis over 2021 U.S. Open finalist Layla Fernandez. 
it was a disappointing loss for Fernandez, no doubt about that. Just never seemed to be able to get comfortably into her playbook dictate with, you know, the on-the-rise backhands and moving forward, hitting the swinging volleys. It just felt like, you know, she was playing tentatively, that she was playing defensive tennis, waiting for Inglis to offer her the errors and hand her the match. And look, that didn't happen. And I mean, again, I still feel just as strongly about Leila Fernandez after this loss as I did coming into this tournament. That said, you certainly, you know, I would I would call this disappointing. I mean, this was a match she should have won. Now, of course, English playing in a home slam, home event, you know, has the opportunity to have that crowd behind her, and certainly they were inspired to back her throughout the course of this matchup. But a little disappointing, if for certain. A little disappointing if you are a fan of Layla Fernandez. Just again, it was the errors, I suppose, that piled up for her in this match. And you look for Layla Fernandez, the official numbers, uh, as we look at the course of this one. And again, you have to give credit to Inglis for putting her in this position. But you look for Layla Fernandez, the numbers, not the kindest to her she makes, I believe, here. Yeah, just, uh, you know, wins just 38% of her second serve points. 30 winners against 54 unforced errors. Now, credit to English, uh, excuse me, yeah, uh, no, 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 30 unforced errors against eight winners. Yeah, there it is. I was like, that number didn't, there's no way she hit 30 winners. Eight winners against 30 unforced errors. Credit to English for just tracking down each and every extra ball, you know, forcing uh, Fernandez to try to feel like she had to do a little bit more with her ground strokes, but she just wasn't able to come up with the goods in this matchup. And, you know, again, I do think Fernandez is someone who has plenty of weapons at her disposal to find a plan B, a plan C, a plan D in her game plan, wasn't able to get to them today. And credit to Inglis, you know, 27 unforced errors, which three less than Fernandez, 14 winners, though, six more. She made 75% of her first serves, just played high percentage tennis and, you know, recognized the fact that, hey, Fernandez is not playing her match. If I stay at best match, if I stay within myself, I can absolutely take this. That's what she does. She takes the match ultimately with her straight set victory. Now, disappointing for Fernandez, certainly, but Plenty of time for her. Clay Court, uh, you know, one of her best surfaces as a junior, a surface I think she's going to have plenty of success on with how well she moves and how well she changes direction throughout the course of her career. Point being, we will not be seeing any more, though, of Layla Fernandez here at this Australian Open. The 23rd seed knocked out in straight sets by Madison Inglis. And you look, by the way, now at that section of the draw. That's another thing. If you're Arena Sabalenka just by surviving today, you know, again, Kanepi uh, knocks out one seed in your section. Inglis knocks out another seed in your section. You're feeling good. You know, no Kerber now if you're Sabalenka. No, uh, excuse me, I'm blanking out here. No uh, Leila Fernandez now if you're Sabalenka. The only seed remaining in the section is Von Drusva. Now I'd point out still Kanepi, Samsonova, plenty dangerous. But it was a good day if you're Arena Sabalenka. You escape with a victory and a couple of seeds fall in your section. That is why my theory of, hey, Sabalenka just needed this one win to get things rocking and rolling. Well, she got the one win. She got some help in the draw as well. Maybe, just maybe, this is the moment where she starts rocking and rolling. With that said, those were your women's upsets. I've mentioned two of the men's upsets already. Uh, Basilishvili, Isner, knocked out on the day by Murray and Cressy, respectively. Your other knock uh, upset, Richard Gasquet. 
3-6-7-6-7-6-6-3 over number 29 seed Ugo Umber. I really did think we were going to get a rejuvenated Umber. The Umber we saw at the ATP Cup who, you know, knocks out Daniil Medvedev, plays Alex Diemenauer to three sets, and, you know, we just didn't. Like, there were a lot of plus-one errors. There was a lot of looking for a first forehand. Oh, I'm not going to get a first forehand. All right, I'm, I lose this point and just, you know, go big on the return of serve as well and just, you know, go for the slap down the line early in the rally when it wasn't necessary. And Gasquet, to his credit, a lot, you know, executed better than Umber did in the tiebreaker, found first serves when he needed him, found depth on his return of serve when needed, and just, you know, didn't let the lefty slice serve out wide of Umber, which you would think in theory to the one-handed backhand of Gasquet would cause him difficulties. Gasquet got such a good read on that ball by the end of the match that he neutralized that play from Umber's arsenal. If you neutralize the serve plus one, there's just not much of a plans B, C, and D for Umber to turn to right now. So Gasquet, great win for the veteran Frenchman, disappointing loss for the 29 seed Umber Gasquet. Four set win, he advances on the day. So your seed's knocked out through the first round. Number 9 seed, Jabour, withdrawed. 11 seed, Kennan. 16 seed, Kerber. 18 seed, Goff. 20 seed, Kvitova. 23 seed, Fernandez. I would say the most shocking of that group, that Fernandez, Goff, out by the end of round one. Of course, on the men's side, Djokovic forced to withdraw. I don't think the Basilevich, or Isner upsets are particularly shocking. I do think the Ugo Umber one is... Korda beating Nori isn't shocking. The way he beat him was shocking. And then Vukic just outplayed Lloyd Harris, but that one's certainly a little bit surprising. Most shocking of the bunch, though, in my opinion, probably Gasquet over Umber because, again, that was just that was a puzzling performance from Ugo Umber where I thought Alex Vukic was just simply, you know, Harris played well. Vukic was better in his victory over the number 30 seed. With all of that said, Got to talk about the top seeds. Got to talk about the straight set results before we close today's show. We'll start on the women's side. Thought being looked pretty good in her straight set victory over Clara Burrell. Burrell, very nice on the forehand wing. Actually, her forehand reminds me a lot of an informed Sonia Kennan's, just the shape of that shot, how round her backswing is, the pronounced loop before she makes contact with the ball. That said, Muguruza clearly was working her match to work her way into this tournament physically, extending rallies when she could have probably gone a bit bigger down the line. And then, you know, three all on in the first set, she turned on the Jets. End of set number two, she turned on the Jets, was moving, I thought, particularly well in this matchup also. Yeah, it was everything you want in a first-round win from Garbine Muguruza. Ditto for Conteve goes down 2-love uh, love in the first set to Sinyakov, I believe, rips off six of the next seven. And it was either 3-2 and two or 3-2-3. and uh, two and three, I forget which way. But Conteve rolling into the second round. Sviantek continuing to do Sviantek things. She has looked like a top-flight contender to take home this title. 6-3-6-love start to her campaign over Harriet Dart. I thought she looked great in the warm-up events as well. Pavlochenkova, who we had yet to see in 2022, great start to her season, 2-1 and one over Bonder, looks fit, struck the ball so well, helpful draw, but keep an eye on Pavs. Halep, 4-3 and three over Freak, Mertens, 4-5 and five over Zvana Reva, both impressive wins over tricky first-round opponents, good win for Kasakina, one of my dark horse picks entering this event, 3-1 and one victory for her over Vogel, Collins, 1-3 over Caroline Dalahide, Von Drusova, sneaky contender, David Gertler's pick to advance out of the Sabalenka court, Marketa Von Drusova, 
6-3 uh, victory over Priscilla Hahn to advance. You look at the tennis. Uh, we'll get to the odds, I suppose, in a second. You look at the non-seeded players. Clara Tawson, healthy. 3-4 and four win for her over former uh, Vanderbilt, excuse me, standout Astra Sharma. Ludmilla Samsonova ends the run of Michigan qualifier Amina Bechtis. Good performance for Bechtis. Too much from Samsonova in the end, though. 5-4. and four. Magda Lynette, straight set win. Alize Cornet, Buzkova, Rebecca Pedersen, Kutsova, Zhang, and Wang. All straight set winners on the day on the women's side. If you're asking me my most impressive performer, from an eye test perspective, probably go Sviantek on the women's side. I mean, she was just... She dominated Dart. You could just tell Harriet Dart. There was nothing she could do to respond to the heaviness, the depth of the Sviantek ball. And then Sviantek moved so fluidly with her combination of power. She was my most impressive performer on the women's side, although Halep certainly moving well. Kasakina, nice win. But that's my most impressive performer for the women. On the men's side, how did the other top seeds look on day number one of competition for them? Well, you start with number two seed, Daniil Medvedev. Went down an early break, I believe, to Henry Laxon. Ultimately comes out, takes the victory in straight sets. You know, third set tiebreaker to decide set number three. Or maybe he, he was down in that. I don't, the point being, he was fine. I mean, he's still, I think, working his way into shape physically, but that he gets out in straight sets, that he was able to play a pretty complete match from start to finish. Good start to his tournament. Great start for Stefano Tsitsipas, who also, like Garbine Muguruza, used his first-round match I don't want to say it's a scrimmage, but it was very clear in the first 10 minutes of the match that, okay, Immer doesn't have the weapons point in, point out, shot in, shot out to put a ton of pressure on Tsitsipas. He's going to try and lull that Tsitsipas backhand to sleep and force Tsitsipas to be overly aggressive and pursue getting into the net in positions where it wouldn't be advantageous, where Immer can then use his otherworldly speed and athleticism to track down that ball, hit a passing shot by Tsitsipas, when again, he hangs an approach shot short, but Tsitsipas didn't take the bait. He was willing to go 10, 15 shots per rally, grind backhand to backhand, and again, used this match to work his backhand, work his fitness into form. Didn't run around the backhand as much as he would against opponent, I think, with bigger weapons, was willing to, again, extend rallies, wait for the perfect ball to go inside out or inside in and follow to the net with on his forehand wing. But 2-4-3 and three, over a very much in-form, always difficult out in Mikhail Emer. That's a fantastic result for Tsitsipas. Gets two, two and a half hours of court time in and just, again, working his way into this tournament. Looked healthy, looked fit. I think that's what matters most. He advances over Mikhail Emer. Similar script for Andre Rublev, by the way. Straight set win over Jean-Luca Mazur. He looked comfortable. The Sin Man was pushed by Jao Sosa, but in the end, Sin are just too much firepower. So locked in, so fiery to start 2022. Straight set win for him over Sosa. Schwartzman cramping at the end, still manages to escape. Straight sets over Krajinovic, Bautista, Goot, a four-set win. Fritz, Dan Evans continued their hot, Chilich continue their hot starts to the season. Straight set wins over Martyr, Gofen, Gomez, respectively. Chilich now 14-4 and four in his last 18 matches, folks. Take notice of what the big former Grand Slam champion is doing. Grigor Dimitrov was pushed, but ultimately knocks out talented young Czech Yuri Lechechka, 7-5 in the fourth. Demonauer drops the first set, comes back to take a four-set win over Lorenzo Musetti. Thought the seeds looked pretty good on day number two. Again, minimal amounts of upsets thus far. The only shocking upset, I would say, of the tournament, maybe the courts, taking out Novak Djokovic and Craig Tiley, or, 
I mean, again, I don't, I don't really think any of these upsets. Gasquet over Umbert, really the only one that shocked me, I suppose. But even then, you know Hugo Umbert, unfortunately, will play not his best match or two every so often. Still, that's what we're at after round one. Now, you know what else round two is going to feature? Nick Kyrgios, who takes out Liam Brody in a ruckus, in front of a ruckus crowd. Straight set victory for Kyrgios. He's got Medvedev next. Oh, man. Is that one going to be fun? Davidovich Fokina, he advances in straights. Camille Matrizak takes his ATP Cup form, brings it uh, to the Australian Open main draw, knocks out Seppi. You also had wins from Taro Daniel, Cole Schreiber, and Deharn Vandesen. Skulp in straight sets. Your four set winners on the day, Mulcan, Matchak, O'Connell, and Norbert Gambos. That's day two at the 2022 Australian Open, and things set up for a fantastic Day number three as well. Of course, again, if you're looking for the full day three breakdown or you're looking for breakdowns of each day's action, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed every day for our Ace of the Day segments. I make picks, but talk about the day at large as well. The matches are going to be watching most closely. It starts with Benchic and Anisimova, which of course was our Patreon match of the day. Benchic, Anisimova, both striking the ball so well of late. Benchic, gold medalist, Anisimova, title winner, first week of the season. I mean, first strike will be the name of the game, and I, I think Benchich is can do more things on the court, but I think Anisimova is the better returner and has more feel around the court as well. It's just a pick em. straight up. Pick em. should be exciting. As Aranka, she beats Teichman comfortably, 35-10 and 10 since the restart in August of 2020 on hard courts. It's time to start talking about her as a top-tier contender if she's able to do that. Of course, Jill Teichman, we know what she can do at her best. Western Southern Open finalist knocked out Osaka, you know, Benchich, a bunch of different players there. Lefty has the angles, has the sort of length and, again, heavy spin game to get Azarenka stretched. Does she have the weapons to constantly hurt her at the start of a point? That's the question. If you like contrast of styles, hard-hitting, fiery Marta Kostyuk against the grinding, fiery Cerebez Tormo, that match has two and a half hours written all over it. Ostapenko, Risk, who knows what's going to happen. Sakari versus a very much inform and big-hitting Chin Wen Zhang. That's a fun one. Pagula Perez fun. Kuder Matova Rus is fun. Plenty of good action across the board on day three. Of course, you look at the men's matches. Karatsev Mackey, that was another pick. I picked Mackey for the upset on our ace of the day. You want to hear about that head there. Broke down Martinez Garin there as well. The Greek Spore forehand is the biggest weapon on the court in his matchup against number 19th seed Carino Busta. Now, again, there's a physicality, a depth to the ground stroke that Carino Busta will bring rally in, rally out. That may expose the bigger backswing for Greek Spore on that wing, but... It is the biggest weapon on the court. And if Crano Boost is struggling with his depth, they're not executing on the first serve. Greek Spore's going to have the opportunity to dictate and play that match on his terms. Just keep an eye on Greek Spore. I think it's won 28 straight matches heading into this one. Of course, you've also got Tommy Paul Kesmenovic. Physical battle. Paul, a little bit better, in my opinion, at everything than Kesmenovic. He should win that match. Opelka, 23 seed, has never beaten Kofor before, but again, he's playing. He's only been broken by Andy Murray this season. Berrettini Kozlov. Uh, the problem is every ball Kozlov hangs short, whether it's a slice or one of his ground strokes when he's 12 feet behind the baseline, is now a forehand for Berrettini. If you let hit forehand, Berrettini hit forehands, he's going to beat you. So I think it's a tough matchup. But Kaz is Kaz, so I'm looking forward to that one. Monfils, Bublik, a lot of shot-making talent on one court. Shapovalov, Kwan, 
Tomas Chapo should win if he wins it comfortably. We got to take an eye on him as we head towards the rest of this tournament. And Hatchinov Bonzi, Bonzi, a guy who's done so much winning on the challenger circuit. Can he take advantage of, again, still struggling to find that confidence he once had in Karen Hatchinov? It's an exciting day of action across the grounds in Melbourne. And, of course, we will be back here earlier, I promise, tomorrow to break it all down. Of course, again, picks each and every day on the GSP Ace of the Day podcast. You can follow all of that action, find all of the content on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at CrackedRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in day out making all of this content possible a shout out as well to our friends at tennis point tennis-point.com promo code is cr15 one last thing i want to do quickly before i let all of you listeners go i want to offer you an update on where the odds stand both via our friends at the tennis abstract forecast and our friends at the DraftKings sportsbook as well let's start on the women's side ashley barty prohibitive uh, not prohibitive but favorite in both Tennis Abstract and DraftKings projections, Barty a 17.8% favorite via Tennis Abstract, plus 225 via our friends at DraftKings. You look at TA's at, uh, percentages, they've got, I believe, let's see, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 20 different players who have a greater than 1% chance of winning the tournament. Now, that may not sound like much, 1% chance, but if you know the ELO ratings as well as I do, if you have above a 1% chance, it means they think you like it's not unlegitimate to see you win the title. 20 different players. Speaks to the depth, the openness in women's tennis right now. It's interesting. Bedosa, number two, with her recent run of success, 10.4%. Muguruza, three. Conteve, four. Halep, five. Osaka, six, probably just because she'd have to beat the favorite in Barty to get there. Vika, a sneaky high seventh. That's, you know, the numbers are on her early. Sakari, eighth. Sabalenka, nine. Shviantek, ten. You look via DraftKings. Barty's one. Osaka's two. Shviantek, three. Muguruza, of four, Bedosa five, Halep six, Radakanu far more valued by gamblers than by the percentages. She's 15 to one, seventh. Conteve eight, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Krachikova all uh, 20 to one, and ninth. Keys 30 to one, tenth. You've got a couple of others as well. Collins, Azarenka, Svitolina, Sakari, Vandrusova all within that 50 to one range, which means people think there's like a legitimate shot. That means someone has bet on them to win the tournament. You look on the men's side. Two prohibitive favorites have emerged via Tennis Abstract. That's Medvedev and Zverev. They're both north of 34% favorites. Medvedev, 37.8. Zverev, 34.4. After that, and as we've been saying here on Crack Racket Shows, it's the youngsters. Sinner, 6.1%. That's third. Alcaraz, 5.2%. That's fourth. Folks, the next next gen is here. They're coming. The numbers indicate it. Sinner and Alcaraz, by the way, fifth and sixth, respectively, via DraftKings odds. I mean, the respect for them is through the roof. Of course, it really does feel like a six-man race. You throw those, obviously, Zirev, Medvedev in the mix, Sinner, Alcaraz in the mix. Then Tsitsipas and Nadal. Tsitsipas, 3.6% chance to win. Nadal, 2% chance. You look at the odds. Nadal's third at plus 500. Tsitsipas, fourth at plus 1,400. 
I don't think it's crazy to say it's a six-man race, to say it's one of those six, because we haven't seen enough from Rublev yet to include him in that group. Schwartzman, 1.1%. I don't think so. By the way, only eight men have above a 1% chance. Again, 20 women, eight men, Rublev, Schwartzman rounding out, plus the group of six I mentioned, the people with over a 1% chance. You then got FAA, Berrettini, 0.9% chance. Get to the Hurkats, Karatsev, Karina Bustup, Tommy Paul, and Monfils section at 0.6%. After that, you know, again, I mentioned the top six already. Seventh by the odds is Berrettini, eighth Rublev, nine Karatsev, ten Monfils. Exciting, exciting times right now. Yeah, men's a little bit more certain, you feel, moving forward than the women's, but it's going to be a fun next two weeks of action in Melbourne. And again, we will be back here each and every day to recap all of the action. But with all of that said, for my fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here, at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.